Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. And as I'm reading this, you're going to get just as bored as I am. And then you'd be like, I shouldn't be bored because it's the Bible. But it's a list of names. And you probably did not spend a long time reading Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. You probably jumped right to verse 18. If you're like me when you read, what are all these names for? Other than, if you're looking to have a kid and looking for Bible names, you might read through a genealogy, but that's about it. But in light of that, I want to read through these names, and then I want to actually talk about why these names collectively are actually significant to the Christmas events. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his entire gospel this way. The book, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I'm not just going to, I'm not going to read like the father of, the father of, does that make sense? You'll figure it out here. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, Judah and his brothers, and Judah of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron of Ram, and Ram of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. By the way, our teens are getting taught about Boaz this morning. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Abijah, Abijah, Asaph, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, Ahaz, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah, the Sheatil, the Sheatil, the Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the Abiyad, the Abiyad, the Eliakim, Eliakim, the Azor, Azor, the father of Zadak, Zadak, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So... All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So, what do we learn from these names in this list? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. So before we do that, let's pray. Father, we need help from the Spirit of God this morning to hear you, to feel your presence, and to know that you are with us. And God, some of us may feel so distant from you this morning. Some of us may feel very close to you this morning. 
But I pray that you'll help all of us in this room to see that we know that you are with us because you have sent Jesus. And now his spirit is with us. And so give us joy as we've talked about this morning to be together as your people under the name and the banner of Jesus. And we give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we learn from this genealogy is this, that the Christmas event is history, not advice. It's history, not advice. So listen to these 42 names to ground the book of the Gospel of Matthew. He begins it with a list of real people, real, identifiable, historical people. That for Matthew's audience at that time, they could actually go and investigate. They could look up the genealogies. They could trace these genealogies. Matthew just didn't make this up and be like, all right, I made it up. No, it was something that was recorded that all the Jews at that time could actually go and investigate. They could investigate the viability of the birth of Jesus, tracing it all the way back through David to Abraham. And what that means is this, that the gospel, that the story of Jesus and his birth is actually what I want to call public truth. It is not a private belief. It is a belief, but it is not something that we as Christians just have to like shy away from and just believe it inside this building and inside of our house. And when we walk outside those spaces, it is now we leave Jesus behind. No, we believe in a public truth, religion. And I'm using religion in a positive way. We believe that Jesus came and it is news for everyone to investigate. It is not advice. The gospel and what the Christian faith is all about is not advice about a better way to live and how to have your best life now and 10 ways to be a good dad. Yes, it's not that that's absent from that. But that is not what the Christian faith is. In itself, it is not grounded in advice. See, the difference between advice and news are threefold at least. Number one, they're on the screen. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. So advice and news here are actually set in antithesis, in opposition to one another. Advice is what you should do. News is something that's already been done. When you watch the news at night, whatever flavor and color you like, the point is, is not them, the newscaster, telling you how to live your life, are they? What are they doing? They're telling you an event that happens. And then out of that, they're giving you some type of advice. But it is not just an advice. It is actually something that has actually been done. Advice, number two, urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something has already happened, and your responsibility is now to respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has already acted. And, and the point, again, here is just these really three statements are highlighting the fact that news is something that has been done. Advice is telling you what you should do. And the gospel is not, first and foremost, telling us what to do, how to live, how to have the best life now. The gospel, first and foremost, is grounded in a public truth, a public reality, that Jesus Christ was born. 
And you can go search the records. You can go search this reality. This is not a fairy tale. Moreover, this is not Aesop's fables, not inspiring examples of how to live well. Many people, I think, as I talk with them, and especially down in the Bible Belt, believe that the gospel is, in a sense, just like this moral, this good way to live. It's it's better to be a Christian than not be a Christian. But I could say that you can't be more mistaken just to think that the gospel is some moralizing way of living or a moralizing story. The shepherds, Mary and Joseph, the wise men, are not being held up as the moral of the story. They're actually pieces to the events, the news that actually happened, that there was a Messiah, a Christ, that was born. And here is the point. The gospel is a public truth reality for us to embrace. It is not something for us to shy away from, to privatize, to keep to ourselves. It is a public news that has gone out to all the world that there is a man named Jesus who was born. And now you and I are forced with that public truth to make a response. I mean, we do this all the time. Whenever you watch the news... Unfortunately, now you have to question whether or not that news is true or not, right? But then after you determine if you think that news is true or not, it calls for a response for you to believe. And I, don't, I know this just happened very um, recently, so I don't take this lightly, but I use this example because it was so recent. If you hear about a live shooter somewhere nearby, that's news. And then you are called to do what? Respond. You're going to respond in the way to that news that you think is appropriate. So if the gospel is news, if it's a statement of public reality that there is a man who is born who claims to be who he says he is, and that's news, it is now up to you and me to respond to that. It isn't something we, again, privatize, keep to ourselves, say it's true for you and it's maybe not true for you. It's not this reality that could be different truths. The question is, is this is what happens. You can investigate it. You can still investigate it. And the response is up to the people who have heard the news. So church, the first thing we see in this reality of this long list of names is that this is history. This is reality. And it is news that you and I are called to respond to. You can reject it. You can deny it. You can do whatever you follow it, embrace it. But what you can't say is it's not news. Jesus Christ was born. And now the call is our response, or our call is to respond to that news. Number two, the second thing I see in this is not just that it's history, but number two, it's centered within a story. <clears throat> all of these names and all of these people, they're recorded in the Old Testament. You can actually go read a lot of these people's stories in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and in order to make sense of our lives, we need a story. We need a cultural story to tell us who we are, where we came from, why we are here, and what will fix the problems with the world. Like the basic worldview questions that you and I all have, how do you answer them? 
You need some sort of overarching story to begin to answer all of those questions. And there's no shortage of stories out there vying for your affections, vying for you to buy into, whether that be an atheistic story or a Christian story or a different Christian story or a red story or a blue story or an American dream story. Whatever that story is, you're looking to it to provide all the answers. And without that story, you have no idea who you are, why you're here, what you're doing, and what's going to fix the world. This Christmas event is centered in the midst of a story. Jesus didn't enter into the world in a vacuum. There is history that is taking place before him in which now he enters into that story at a certain place, at a certain time, as Galatians 4 tells us, at the fullness of time, God sent forth Jesus to be born of a virgin, of a, of a lady named Mary. And it is this story that actually determines the meaning of Christmas. And I need you to like focus, like this is, if I gave you one thing all day, this is it. The story that Jesus comes into defines and determines what Jesus came to do. Does that make sense? Everything before wasn't just like precursor and now that Jesus came, it's all done. I feel like that's how we treat the Christmas story or the Christian faith is like we don't know what to do with Genesis 12, that's his calling of Abraham, all the way to Malachi. We just go from God created the world, man, I'm skipping, now I'm going off on a rabbit trail. I'm sorry. We just go, we're just going to do it. We just go from God create the world to, to Adam ruined it and jacked it up. And then what's the next place we go? Jesus. And we just skipped 80% of the Bible. And then we think we know what Jesus came to do because we read a verse somewhere in Matthew. And yet, if I were just to walk up here, if you were to tell your story and you just told this, the 40th year of your life that story, that's all you did, how well would you know someone's story, their life? You wouldn't know it very well. Would you know true parts of it? Yes. But that's what we do with Jesus, is like we don't understand that he is actually in the midst of an unfolding story that God is working in and through the world with a people and a nation called Israel. In fact, in this group, there are three groups of 14 names, so 42 total names. And look in verse 17, Matthew helps you understand what he's doing. There's 14 generations. The first group is from Abraham, who, is, who God called to start the nation of Israel, to David. Then there's a second middle group. And that middle group is from David to the end of the exile to Babylon. And if you're not familiar with the story uh, of the Old Testament of the nation of Israel, that's okay. But what ended up happening after David and Solomon is they began to disobey God and God sent other nations to come in and take them captive. And the nation split into northern and southern kingdom. And God eventually sent both nations into captivity. And the final one was in Babylon. This is the second group of, uh, of names that Matthew records. And the third group of names is from the exile, from when they come back to the lands, until the time of Jesus. So he's centering Jesus in light of the story of Israel, which means this, we don't get to make up our own understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We don't get to define that. We want to define that. We want Jesus to be 
who we want him to be. There's an old adage um, from a church theologian who said this, that God created us in his image and we have returned the favor. We have made him in our image. And what does he mean by that? He means that we have turned God into who we want him to be rather than who he actually is. We want God, and these are just big, hyper, you know, big categories. We want God to be like a cosmic vending machine that we send up prayers and down come my blessings. We want God to be this cosmic healing genie who will, we rub the Bible three times, morning, noon, and night, and out comes riches and health and wealth, and we turn God into who we want him to be for us. And we do that with Jesus. But if we're going to actually come and understand the Christmas event, we read through all of these names and we come to see that Jesus is in this unfolding story and his identity, who he is, and his mission, what he came to do, can only be understood in the midst of that story. And because I don't have four hours to tell you that story, I feel like bad, like I just yelled at all of us, including me. You don't know that story, then I'm going to move on. (laughs) It's not nice. But I'm going to tell you a little bit of how that story unfolds so that we see a piece to the puzzle that I want us to catch up on. In the beginning, God created the world to be his dwelling place with us. God created the earth to be the place where he would come and dwell with us. That's why he created it. And he commissioned Adam and Eve and their progeny, their children and great-grandchildren who would come. He commissioned them to expand the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. What that meant was they weren't supposed to stay in that little Garden of Eden enjoying life for billions of years. No, they were to take that garden and the temple where God was and keep building out. Keep expanding. In fact, the Bible actually says, rule, subdue, and fill the earth. And they were to do this to prepare the world for God's arrival, to make it a suitable place for God to come and to be with his people. And yet six minutes into this plan, Adam and Eve, as we have studied in our previous study on the doctrine of sin, they have destroyed that commissioning. They have destroyed that ability to rightly relate to God. They have destroyed their mission to actually prepare the earth for God's arrival. And in, reju- in rejecting God, Adam even no longer rulers of this world, but now Satan is ruling over this age. And yet God in his loving wisdom was determined to continue to bring about his purposes to dwell with us, to dwell with you. And so what did he do? He called a man named Abraham. And he said to Abraham, you leave Ur of the Chaldees and Babylon and your false gods and leave your family and go to a land that you don't even know where you're going, but I'm going to take you there. And out of you, you're going to bless the whole world, Abraham. And so Abraham moves and God begins this nation with him in Israel and this nation begins to expand and to grow and to grow until there's this massive population in Egypt. And God rescues them. And he commissions this new group of people, the nation of Israel, and says, you are going to be the people who actually bring the blessing of creation to the ends of the earth. And so God gives them a mission and calls them a kingdom of priests. The whole nation would function as a mediator between God and the world. So just in the Old Testament, 
when you wanted to go to God, you had to go through a priest. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's what priests do. They stood in the middle between you and God. The nation of Israel would stand in the middle between God and the nation. So how would all the nations come to know, to be with God, to experience God's life through the people of Israel? And the way that they would actually draw the nations to themselves, anyone know how they would draw the nations to themselves? Not by going, but by the way they actually lived their life together. This is the purpose of the law. The law wasn't a bunch of rules to make your life miserable. It was actually a law of love. This is how you love your neighbor. You know how you love your neighbor? You don't steal from them. That's not like, dang, I can't steal this pack of bubblegum from Food Lion. No, you don't steal from your neighbor because you love them. How do you relate when your neighbor accidentally kills your ox? Well, you don't go over there and just chop your neighbor's ox head off. There's laws for that. It's how you love one another. And the reason the law was so beautiful was when the Israel actually obeyed it, there is this flourishing community of love. And guess what? When David, the greatest king in Israel's history, led God's people in God's ways, guess who began to come and flood themselves to Israel? The nations. Maybe you've heard of a lady named the Queen of Sheba. An African princess boards a boat and crosses the sea to come and visit a man named Solomon because she has heard about this God and his ways and what God has done through those people. And yet, how well did Israel keep that law? And why couldn't Israel keep that law? And here's why. Because the powers of Satan and sin were just too strong to allow God's people to actually become who they were always supposed to be, a kingdom of priests. And yet God was going to be faithful to fill his promises and bring these people out and to make them become who they were going to be. And so how does Jesus... Nope. How does God do that? Jesus. I can't wait the answer. That is terrible. That is terrible storytelling. In case you didn't know, it's Jesus. And so what does Jesus come to do in the midst of this story? He comes as a king of David. He comes as a royal figure. This is why it keeps talking about David and, and, and all these kings' names, because he is in that royal lineage to be this king who is going to come and conquer. But you know who he comes and conquers? is not Rome, not Herod, not Caesar, but all of the powers that control Herod and Caesar are the ones that Jesus conquered. He conquered the powers of sin, Satan, and death in his death and resurrection. And this is why Jesus came. He came because he wants to be with us and to make us be who we were always supposed to be. And we, the church, become the people of God, the kingdom of priests, to actually radiate God's love and life to the world. And how do we do that, church? By the way, we organize our life together in love. And so the goal of Christian, sorry, the goal of the Christmas events is not Jesus coming down so that we can go up and be with God. The goal is not Jesus coming down so we can escape this physical world because this world is evil and wrong. The goal of the Christmas event is not to come Jesus to come down so that we can go up and enjoy this spiritual, ethereal world forever. 
Oh, the goal is not how we can go up to be with God. The goal is how God can actually come down to be with us. And Jesus, when he came the first time, actually is anticipating the future. He came to be with us. And he's coming a second time, and that time, the second time he comes, God in the fullness of the Trinitarian God will come with him, and heaven and earth will be united, and you and I will live forever in a physical, real world with the presence of God. And so the Christmas story, the Christmas events, must be understood in light of what God is doing in his story. We can't make up for our kids this Christmas who Jesus is. He's not just some cute little baby in a manger. He's not just some guy that we say gave you gifts instead of Santa because we're Christians. He's not just some royal figure who will come and, again, this sounds bad, but save them and take their sins away. He is the one who has come to bring heaven and earth together. And we, as followers of him, get to enjoy that world when he comes. Number one, the Christmas story is history. It's not advice. Number two, the Christmas story is centered within a story that this list of names helps us understand. And number three, the Christmas event is for everyone. It's for everyone. I don't know what struck you, if anything struck you, as I was reading through all of those names. But there's like little pieces in that genealogy that just stand out. And why? We live in an individualistic culture. And that's not surprising, right? And in your individualistic culture that we live in, if you want to recommend yourself to someone else for a job, what do you give them? A resume, right? Of all the things that you have done in your life. Correct? I don't, you know, I don't know if you ever put together a resume, but you start listing all of your job experiences and how long you were there, and it tells you who you are, and it's like you recommending yourself for a position, for a job. And that's just how our culture works. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just, it's just how it is. But in the ancient world, they didn't do resumes. In the ancient world, rather than handing in a resume to recommend yourself, you'd actually hand in a genealogy. Matthew 1 looks like a genealogy, and it is a genealogy, because this is how Matthew is recommending Jesus to his readers. Look at his family. Look at his pedigree. Look at his clan. The people that you were related to back in the ancient world meant everything. My first wife, Shelley, they traced her roots back to Abraham Lincoln. You know what that did for me? Nothing. You know what it did for her? Nothing. We got no cool jobs. We don't have lots of money. Nothing. But she had traced her roots back to Abraham Lincoln, right? Like, who? that didn't matter. But in Jesus' day, that did matter. That is how you recommended yourself. And just like today, any of you ever tinkered with your resume? Like, left a job out because you got fired? You wouldn't do that, right? Well, the ancient world tinkered with their resume, too, and their genealogies. They would leave out names of people who made them look bad. It's very obvious when you read and look at even just Roman history, Jewish history, of Herod the Great took many names from his public genealogy and just removed them. Why? Because it made his resume look bad. I mean, we do this a little bit different. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to do it, okay? Like, there are soccer players who just go by their first name. And it's really, it's really saddening um, that they do this because they don't even want their last name to be mentioned because their last name is the name of their father, and their father left their mother and their brothers and sisters when they were four. This happens all the time. You ever wonder why soccer players just have one name? Most of the time, it's that. And so they remove that name because they don't want anything associated with that name as part of their life. And we do it on resumes. That's what they did in genealogies back then. And it still goes on today. And if Matthew wanted to tinker with this resume and make it look really, really good, guess who you would not have in this resume? The five women who are listed in it. First of all, it is very uncommon in the ancient world to have any woman's name in a genealogy. And yet there are five women who are listed in the genealogy. These are all, in a sense, we could say these were all the mothers of Jesus, the grandmothers, the great-great-grandmothers. In a patriarchal society, to include one woman in your genealogy was crazy, let alone five of them. But why does Matthew include five women in a very patriarchal society in a genealogy? We could call these women gender outsiders, especially in that culture. It's interesting, these women who are named also are names of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, who were not Israelite or Jewish in nature or by blood. They're actually Canaanites and a Moabitess. To the ancient Jews, these women were unclean. To a Democrat, they're Republicans. Republicans, they were Democrats. They hated each other. They wanted nothing to do with those outsiders. These women were gender outsiders. They were, in a sense, we'd call them racial outsiders. And then you look at the stories of these women. You remember the story of Tamar tricked her father-in-law into having sex with her? Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who God saved in, with helping the spies in Jericho. It's interesting, Bathsheba is not even mentioned by name, but it's talking about David's wife, Bathsheba. And in fact, I think more of the reason Bathsheba is not named is because it's shame on David, not shame on Bathsheba. But the whole story of Bathsheba is David committing adultery with this woman. There are gender outsiders, there's racial outsiders, there are moral outsiders, all included in this list. And I think it shows us a few things. It shows us that, first of all, that people who are often excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into God's family because it doesn't matter your pedigree. Your resume has nothing to do with whether or not you can be part of God's family. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're like the Apostle Paul who has actually killed people and then repented. It shows us that no one is excluded. Number two, it shows us there's not even the greatest human being who doesn't need the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no one, not even the worst human being, who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus through repentance and faith. And the best of you also need the grace of Jesus 
by repentance and faith. See, what this list is showing us is that everyone is included and everyone is, number one, equally lost and sinful. I don't know where you think you are, but oftentimes in Christian churches, we have this list of people. The pastors, they're the most spiritual people of all time. The deacons, they're the second most spiritual. The MC leaders, they're the third. And then there's like you, like way down the bottom list, right? Like we think of ourselves in these categories. We think of ourselves in, in like this echelon of spirituality that, man, I wish I could have as much faith as that person. I wish I could be like this person. But do you want to know something? In Jesus Christ, by his grace, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, all sit down at a table as equals. Equally sinful, equally lost, equally in need of the grace of Jesus the Christ. It's mind-blowing to me that in this genealogy, five women are named. Just showing us again and again that there is no superior. There is no elite. We all are one in Jesus. There are outsiders, are the people that Jesus came for to save, to rescue and I want you to know that you are not an outsider. If you're in Jesus, you're an insider. And I also want to say this too, church, that the grace of Jesus doesn't just make us an insider, but the grace of Jesus makes us go out to the outsider. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Like, if the grace of Jesus really has reached you and me, and we once were outside, but now we're in, that grace should then motivate us and encourage us to go where? Back to the outsiders. See, I think many times we don't have people who are outside of our demographic, outside of our race, outside of our comfort zone, outside of our social status, like None of you asked me to come watch a soccer game with you this week. I feel so offended. No, I'm just kidding. But we don't, like have, we don't like to have people who are different than us, who are outside of our normal, do we? Why? I would actually say it's because you and I don't really understand that we once were outsiders who Jesus has brought in. And if we really understood that we were the outsiders who were brought in, we would not have this hierarchical, we would not have this superiority understanding. We'd actually love people who are not like us, just as Jesus loved you when you were nothing like him. The Christmas event in this genealogy teaches us that the, the gospel event, the Christmas event, is historical. We're called to respond. It teaches us that we can't make up who we want Jesus to be. We must identify who he is within the story. And it teaches us, this genealogy, that all of us come as equals to Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.